Section 6 of Irish Wit and Humour. The author is anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. Arthur O'Leary, Part 2. His Person and Mode of Argument. Mr. Butler, in his historical memoirs, describes O'Leary's person and mode of argument thus. The appearance of Father O'Leary was simple. In his countenance there was a mixture of goodness, solemnity, and drollery, which fixed every eye that beheld it. No one was more generally loved or revered, no one less assuming or more pleasing in his manner. Seeing his external simplicity, persons with whom he was arguing were sometimes tempted to treat him cavalierly but then the solemnity with which he would mystify his adversary and ultimately lead him into the most distressing absurdity was one of the most delightful scenes that conversation ever exhibited o'leary and captain rock in tom moore's memoirs of captain rock the outlaw gives the following humorous sketch the appearance of Father Arthur at our little chapel was quite unexpected. We had heard, indeed, that he was proceeding through distant parts of the country, but we had no idea that he would pay us a visit. The mind of man is a strange compound of opposite passion. I had everything to apprehend from the poor friar's preaching, yet, strange as it may appear, I was almost willing to have all my bright scenes overturned, provided I could have the pleasure to see and hear the celebrated Father O'Leary. He opposed our designs, disapproved of our motives, and censured our intentions. Yet without having ever seen him, we loved, almost adored him. Fame had wafted his name even to Rockland, and how could we but venerate a man who had exalted the character of Irishmen, vindicated our oppressed country, and obtained from the ranks of Protestantism friends for our insulted creed. Besides, he was peculiarly adapted to our taste. He made the world laugh at the foibles of our enemies, and put us in good humour with ourselves. It was not, therefore, without some slight satisfaction that we were informed from the altar that the good friar meant to address us on our manifold transgressions. Never did men manifest such eagerness to receive reproof. At the sound of his name there was a general rush towards the altar. The old women, for the first time in their lives, ceased coughing and the old men desisted from spitting. The short people were elevated on their toes, and the tall people suffered their hats, felt ones, to be crushed as flat as pancakes, sooner than incommode their neighbours, a degree of politeness seldom practised in more polished assemblies. All breathed short and thick, and much as we venerated our good priest, we fancied he was particularly tedious in the lecture he thought fit to read us on our neglecting to go to confession, and on our dilatoriousness in paying the last Easter dues. At length he concluded by announcing Father O'Leary. Lots drawn to have him at dinner. In 1779, 
O'Leary visited Dublin on business connected with a bill before Parliament which aimed at the destruction of the friars. During his visit to Dublin at this period, the following circumstance, quite characteristic of O'Leary, is said to have taken place. He accidentally met in the lobby of the House of Commons the late Lord Avonmore, then Mr. Yelverton, and two gentlemen, members of the legislature, who, on his appearance, entered into a friendly altercation to determine with which of them O'Leary should, on the next day, share the splendid hospitality which reigned in the metropolis during the sessions of Parliament. It was at length decided that the prize of his unrivalled wit and sociability should be determined by lot. O'Leary was an amused and silent spectator of the contest. The fortunate winner was congratulated on his success, and the rivals separated to meet on the morrow. When the hour of dinner was come, O'Leary forgot which of his three friends was to be his host. It was too late to make formal inquiries, and, as he was the honoured guest, he dared not absent himself. In this difficulty, his ready imagination suggested an expedient. His friends, he recollected, lived in the same square, and he therefore, some short time after the usual dinner hour, sent a servant to inquire at each of the houses if Father O'Leary was there. At the first two, where application was made, the reply was in the negative, but at the last the porter answered that he was not there, but that dinner was ordered to be kept back, as he was every moment expected. Thus directed, Father Arthur's apology for delay was a humorous and detailed account of his expedient. The evening flew quickly away, on the wings of eloquence and wit, and the laughable incident was long remembered and frequently repeated. Father O'Leary's great intimacy with the leading Protestants of London gave rise to a rumour that he, like Lord Dunboyne and Mr. Kerwin, had read his recantation. He contradicts it in the following letter. London, June 5th, 1790. Sir, a confusion of names gave rise, some months ago, to a mistake copied from the Dublin Evening Post into the Bath Chronicle and other papers in this kingdom, viz. that I had read my recantation in St. Werburgh's Church in Dublin. Thus a mistake has changed me into a conformist, though I never changed my creed. If in reality the tenets of my church were such as prejudice and ignorance proclaimed them, if they taught me that a papal dispensation could sanctify guilt, sanction conspiracies, murders, the extirpation of my fellow-creatures on account of difference of religious opinions, perjury to promote the Catholic cause by pious breaches of allegiance to Protestant kings, or rebellion against their government, if it were an article of my belief that a priestly absolution without sorrow for my sins, or a resolution of amendment, had the power of a charm to reclaim me to the state of unoffending infancy, and enable me, like Milton's devil, to leap from the gulf of sin into paradise without purifying my heart or changing my affections. 
if it were an article of my faith that the grace of an indulgence could give me the extraordinary privilege of sinning without guilt or offending without punishment if it inculcated any maxim evasive of moral rectitude in a word if the features of my religion corresponded with the pictures drawn of it in flying pamphlets and anniversary declamations i would consider myself and the rest of my fraternity as downright idiots wickedly stupid to remain one hour in a state which deprives us of our rights as citizens whereas such an accommodating scheme would make them not only attainable but certain your correspondent does me the honour to rank me with lord dunboyne formerly titular bishop of cork and with mr kirwin if they have changed their religion from a thorough conviction of its falsehood they have done well it is the duty of every sincere admirer after truth to comply with the immediate dictates of his conscience in embracing that religion which he believes most acceptable to god deplorable indeed must be the state of the man who lives in wilful error for however an all-wise god may hereafter dispose of those who err in their honesty and whose error is involuntary and invincible surely no road can be right to the wretch who walks in it against conviction a thorough conviction then that i am in the right road to eternal life if my moral conduct corresponds with my speculative belief keeps me within the pale of my church in direct opposition to my temporal interest and no protestant nobleman or gentleman of my acquaintance esteems me the less for adhering to my creed knowing that a catholic and an honest man are not contradictory terms i do not consider lord dunboyne as a model after whom i should copy with his silver locks and at an age when persons who had devoted themselves to the service of the altar in their early days should like the emperor charles v rather think of their coffins than the nuptial couch that prelate married a young woman whether the glowing love of truth or hymen's torch induced him to change the roman pontifical for the book of common prayer and the psalms he and i often sang together for a bridal hymn his own conscience is the most competent to determine certain however it is that if the charms of the fair sex can captivate an old bishop to such a degree as to induce him to renounce his breviary similar motives and the prospect of aggrandizement may induce a young ecclesiastic to change his cassock having from my early days accustomed myself to get the mastery over ambition and love the two passions that in every age have enslaved the greatest heroes your correspondent may rest assured that i am not one of the trio mentioned in this letter author o'leary o'leary and the rector a protestant rector invited o'leary to see his parish church a building remarkable for its architectural beauty while the friar was viewing the building the rector thought he was contrasting its nakedness with the interior beauty of the roman catholic churches and observed 
you perceive mr o'leary said he that different from you we are very sparing of ornaments in our churches we have neither paintings nor statuary to attract the worshippers attention ah replied o'leary with an arch smile you are young housekeepers you know lady morgan lady morgan in her wild irish girl speaking of father john chaplain of the prince of Culavan says father john was modelled on the character of the dean of sligo dr flynn one of those learned liberal and accomplished gentlemen of the irish catholic hierarchy of that day whom foreign travel and education and consequent intercourse with european society and opinions sent back to ireland for its advantage and illustration thus turning the penalties of its shallow and jealous government into a national benefit at the head of this distinguished order stood the illustrious father o'leary the catholic dean swift of his time the champion of peace and the eloquent preacher of christian charity his noble works live to attest his fitness to counsel his country for her good while his brilliant wit kept up her reputation for that splendid gift which penal statutes can neither give nor take away a batch of interesting anecdotes in his personal sketches sir jonah barrington gives us a portrait of father o'leary i frequently had an opportunity of meeting at my father-in-law mr gorgon's where he often dined a most worthy priest father o'leary and have listened frequently with great zest to anecdotes which he used to tell with a quaint yet spirited humour quite unique his manner his air his countenance all bespoke wit talent and a good heart i liked his company excessively and have often regretted i did not cultivate his acquaintance more or recollect his witticisms better it was singular but it was a fact that even before father o'leary opened his lips a stranger would say that is an irishman and at the same time guess him to be a priest one anecdote in particular i remember coming from st omer's he told us he stopped a few days to visit a brother priest in the town of boulogne-sur-mer here he heard of a great curiosity which all people were running to see curious bear that some fishermen had taken at sea out of a wreck it had sense and attempted to utter a sort of lingo which they called patois but which nobody understood o'leary gave his six sous to see the wonder which was shown at the port by candlelight and was a very odd kind of animal no doubt the bear had been taught a hundred tricks all to be performed at the keeper's word of command it was late in the evening when o'leary saw him and the bear seemed sulky the keeper however with a short spike fixed at the end of a pole made him move about briskly he marked on sand what o'clock it was with his paw and distinguished the men and women in a very comical way in fact our priest was quite diverted the beast at length grew tired the keeper hit him with the pole he stirred a little 
but continued quite sullen his master coaxed him no he would not work at length the brute of a keeper gave him two or three sharp pricks with the goad when he roared out most tremendously and rising on his hind legs swore at his tormentors in very good native irish o'leary waited no longer but went immediately to the mayor whom he informed that the blackguard fishermen had sewn up a poor irishman in a bear's skin and were showing him about for six sous the civic dignitary who had himself seen the bear would not believe our friend at last o'leary prevailed on him to accompany him to the room on their arrival the bear was still on duty and o'leary stepped up to him says keenest thou through a falfrig how do you do pat slan go rimmath agut pretty well thank you says the bear the people were surprised to hear how plainly he spoke but the mayor ordered him directly to be ripped up and after some opposition and a good deal of difficulty pat stepped forward stark naked out of the bear's skin wherein he had been fourteen or fifteen days most cleverly stitched the women made off the men stood astonished and the mayor ordered his keepers to be put in gaol unless they satisfied him but that was presently done the bear afterwards told o'leary that he was very well fed and did not care much about the clothing only they worked him too hard the fishermen had found him at sea on a hen-coop which had saved him from going to the bottom with a ship wherein he had a little venture of dry cod from dungarvan and which was bound from waterford to bilboa he could not speak a word of any language but irish and had never been at sea before the fishermen had brought him in fed him well and endeavoured to repay themselves by showing him as a curiosity o'leary's mode of telling this story was quite admirable i never heard any anecdote and i believe this one to be true related with such genuine drollery which was enhanced by his not changing a muscle himself while every one of his hearers was in a paroxysm of laughter another anecdote he used to tell with incomparable dramatic humour by the by all his stories were somehow national and this gives me occasion to remark that i think ireland is at this moment as little known in many parts of the continent as it seems to have been then i have myself heard it more than once spoken of as an english town at nancy where father o'leary was travelling his native country happened to be mentioned when one of the party a quiet french farmer of burgundy asked in an unassuming tone if ireland stood encore encore said an astonished john bull a courier coming from germany encore to be sure she does we have her yet i assure you monsieur though neither very safe nor very sound interposed an officer of the irish brigade who happened to be present looking very significantly at o'leary and not very complacently at the courier and play monsieur rejoined john bull to the frenchman why encore 
pardon monsieur replied the frenchman i heard it had been worn out fatigue long ago by the great number of people that were living in it the fact is the frenchman had been told and really understood that ireland was a large house where the english were wont to send their idle vagabonds and from whence they were drawn out again as they were wanted to fill the ranks of the army a dog's religion one day while walking in the suburbs of the city of cork he met the reverend mr flack a protestant clergyman and mr solomon's a jew both friends of his mr flack's dog was running on before them good morrow friends said o'leary well what interesting topic engages your attention now to be candid with you replied the clergyman we were just conjecturing what religion this dog of mine would be likely to embrace if it were possible for him to choose strange subject indeed said o'leary but were i to offer an opinion i would venture to say he would become a protestant how asked the protestant clergyman and the jew why replied o'leary he would not be a jew for you know he would retain his passion for pork he would not become a catholic for i am quite certain he would eat meat on a friday what religion then could he become but a protestant howard the philanthropist and mr henry shears about this time it was says his biographer that the philanthropist howard led by his benevolent enthusiasm to fathom dungeons vindicate the wrongs and alleviate the sufferings of the lonely and forgotten victim of vice and crime arrived at cork a society had for some years existed in that city for the relief and discharge of persons confined for small debts of which o'leary was an active and conspicuous member this association had its origin in the humane mind of henry shears esq the father of two distinguished victims to the political distractions of their country in seventeen ninety eight and a literary production of that gentleman which in its style and matter emulated the elegance and morality of addison strengthened and matured the benevolent institution during mr howard's stay in cork he was introduced to o'leary by their common friend archdeacon austin two such minds required but an opportunity to admire and venerate each other and frequently in after times howard boasted of sharing the friendship and esteem of the friar his habits of study his influence in the midst of the cares and distractions says his biographer to which the active duties of the ministry subjected o'leary he still indulged his usual habits of study no unexpected visitor ever found him unoccupied his reading was extensive profound and incessant and his hours of silence and retreat as many as he could abstract from the necessary and inevitable claim of his flock or could deny to the kind of importunity of his numerous and respectable acquaintance few men ever possessed the power of enjoying an extensive influence over public opinion more than o'leary 
Everything he said or wrote was by everyone admired. The wise and learned were delighted with the original and correct views which he took of every subject that employed his mind, whilst the amiable simplicity of his manners, the endearing kindness of his disposition, and the worth, purity, and uprightness of his life and conduct were claims to regard that could neither be denied nor unattended to. It is therefore to be lamented that such transcendent faculties should have remained suspended or inactive, or been for a moment diverted in their application from their appropriate object or natural sphere, the moral correction of the age. Edmund Burke On Father O'Leary's arrival in London, he was anxiously sought after by his countrymen residing in that capital, who all felt gratified by every opportunity which offered itself of paying respect to one who had done so much honour to religion and their country. Mr. Edmund Burke was very marked in the regard which he manifested to O'Leary. It was, in fact, impossible, after an evening spent in his society, not to seek at every future opportunity a renewal of the delight which his wit, pleasantly, and wisdom afforded. His Charity Like Dean Swift, Father O'Leary relieved every Monday morning a number of reduced room-keepers and working-men. The average of his weekly charity amounted to two, sometimes three pounds, though he had no income except that derived from the contributions of those who frequented the poor Capuchin little chapel. After the publication of his essay on toleration, Father O'Leary was elected a member of the monks of St. Patrick, which took its rise under the auspices of that great lawyer, Lord Avonmore, then Mr. Yelverton. As a return for the honour this conferred on him, he expressed his gratitude in the dedication of his various productions, which he collected together and published in 1781. At one of the meetings of the English Catholic Board, whilst O'Leary was addressing the chairman, the late Lord Petra, it was suggested by the noble president that the speaker was entering on topics not calculated to promote the unanimity of the assembly. O'Leary, however, persevered, on which Lord Petra interrupted him, adding, Mr. O'Leary, I regret much to see that you are out of order. The reply was equally quick and characteristic. I thank you for your anxiety, my lord, but I assure you, I never was in letter health in my life. The archness of manner with which these words were uttered was triumphant, and every unpleasant feeling was lost in the mirth which was necessarily excited. O'Leary versus Curran In the reminiscences of the celebrated singer and composer Michael Kelly, the following interesting anecdotes are given. I had the pleasure to be introduced to my worthy countryman, the Reverend Father O'Leary, the well-known Roman Catholic priest. He was a man of infinite wit, 
of instructing and amusing conversation i felt highly honoured by the notice of this pillar of the roman church our tastes were congenial for his reverence was mighty fond of whisky punch and so was i and many a jug of st patrick's eye-water night after night did his reverence and myself enjoy chatting over the exhilarating and national beverage he sometimes favoured me with his company at dinner when he did i always had a corned shoulder of mutton for him for he like some others of his countrymen who shall be nameless was marvellously fond of that dish one day the facetious john philpot curran who was very partial to the said corned mutton did me the honour to meet him to enjoy the society of such men was an intellectual treat they were great friends, and seemed to have a mutual respect for each other's talents, and, as it may be easily imagined, O'Leary versus Curran was no bad match. One day after dinner Curran said to him, Reverend Father, I wish you were St. Peter, and why, Counselor, would you wish that I were St. Peter? asked O'Leary. Because, Reverend Father, in that case, said Curran, you would have the keys of heaven, and you could let me in. By my honour and conscience, Counselor, replied the Divine, it would be better for you if I had the keys of the other place, for then I could let you out. Curran enjoyed the joke, which he admitted had a good deal of justice in it. His Triumph Over Dr. Johnson O'Leary told us of a whimsical triumph which he once enjoyed over the celebrated Dr. Johnson. O'Leary was very anxious to be introduced to that learned man, and Mr. Arthur Murphy took him one morning to the doctor's lodgings. On his entering the room, the doctor viewed him from top to toe, without taking any notice of him, and at length darting one of his sourest looks at him, he spoke to him in the Hebrew language, to which O'Leary made no reply. "'Why do you not answer me, sir?' "'Faith, sir,' said O'Leary, "'because I don't understand the language in which you are addressing me.' Upon this the doctor, with a contemptuous sneer, said to Murphy, "'Why, sir, this is a pretty fellow you have brought hither. Sir, he does not comprehend the primitive language.' O'Leary immediately bowed very low, and complimented the doctor in a long speech in Irish, to which the doctor, not understanding a word, made no reply, but looked at Murphy. O'Leary, seeing the doctor was puzzled at hearing a language of which he was ignorant, said to Murphy, pointing to the doctor, "'This is a pretty fellow to whom you have brought me, sir. He does not understand the language.' of the sister kingdom the reverend padre then made another low bow and quitted the room a nolo prosequi at the time that barry yelverton was attorney-general himself and o'leary while enjoying the beauties of killarney had the rare opportunity to witness a stag hunt the hunted animal ran towards the spot where the attorney-general and o'leary stood ah said father arthur with genuine wit how naturally instinct 
leads him to come to you that you may deliver him by a nole prosequi the prince of wales george the fourth when prince of wales frequently had as guests at his table sheridan grattan curran flood and father o'leary crowley in his life of george the fourth says an occasional guest and a sufficiently singular one was an irish franciscan arthur o'leary a man of strong faculties and considerable knowledge his first celebrity was as a pamphleteer in a long battle with woodward the able bishop of cloyne in ireland o'leary abounded in irish anecdote and was a master of pleasant humour Sheridan said that he considered claret the true parliamentary wine for the peerage, for it might make a man sleepy or sick, but it never warmed his heart or stirred up his brains. Port, generous port, was for the commons, it was for the business of life, it quickened the circulation and fancy together. For his part he never felt that he spoke as he liked until after a couple of bottles o'leary observed that this was like a porter he never could go steady without a load on his head the closing scenes of his life the disturbances said his biographer by which ireland was convulsed in seventeen ninety eight pained o'leary's mind the efforts made by the tools of a base faction to give the tinge of religious fanaticism to the political distractions of that country excited his indignation and as his name had been wantonly and insultingly introduced by sir richard musgrave in his libellous compilation on the irish rebellions he entertained the notion of publishing a refutation of the calumnies which had been so industriously circulated against the catholics not only in that scandalous work but likewise in various other historical essays at that time for this purpose o'leary had prepared some very valuable manuscript collections he looked back to the history of the earlier periods of the english rule in ireland and from his friends in various parts of that kingdom he procured authentic details of the insurrectionary disturbances impartiality was his object and he left no means untried to collect the most voluminous and exact account of every circumstance connected with or immediately arising out of the rebellion the history of which he ultimately declared in his design to publish the progress of disease and the rapidly increasing infirmities of old age hindered the fulfilment of o'leary's wishes he was unable to proceed into any part of the task of composition but he was relieved from anxiety by the fortunate circumstance of his intimacy with francis plowden esq whose historical review of ireland and whose subsequent publication in defence of that country have raised him to a rank amongst historians honourably and deservedly conspicuous when O'Leary learned that his friend was engaged, at the desire of Mr. Pitt, in writing the historical review, he sent him his invaluable collections as affording the best and most authentic materials for the recent history of Ireland, and the manner in which the documents, 
thus furnished or applied to the purposes of truth must have given gratification to o'leary's mind had he lived long enough to witness this successful vindication of his country and religion his descent to the grave was too rapid to afford him that pleasure and it was not till it had closed over his remains that the world was gratified with the best and most authentic work ever published on the political history of ireland we approach now to the last scene of o'leary's busy life and it is one which like too many others preaches to mankind the necessity of being always prepared for the unrevealed hour that shall terminate mortal existence towards the end of the year eighteen o one ill-health shed a gloom over his mind to which the consciousness of approaching dissolution gave facilities and permanency his contests with bad men had been frequent and the frailties and follies of the world and the instability of human friendship which he had often experienced haunted his mind at this time to a degree that was painful for those who loved and revered him to witness his medical friends tried the resources of their professional skill for the alleviation of his disease in vain and as a last prescription they recommended to him a short residence in the south of france as calculated if anything could to revive his spirits and restore his health agreeably to this advice in company with mr mcgrath a medical friend to whose kindness he was much indebted he proceeded to france but his hopes of relief were disappointed and he shortly determined on returning to london the state in which he found society in france so different from what it had been when he first visited the lovely fertile south shocked him and he uttered his opinion of the change which he witnessed by saying emphatically that there was not now a gentleman in all france his arrival in london was on the seventh of january eighteen o two it was his intention to have landed at dover but tempestuous weather compelled the vessel in which he was to land at ramsgate the effects of this voyage tended to hasten his death which took place the morning after his arrival in london in the seventy-third year of his age End of section six recording by james carson